Hello and welcome to the Talk to Thompson's podcast. I'm Paul Kisson. Today we will be discussing the law on redundancies with a focus on the trade union movement, the benefits of being a member of a union and the outlook for the UK economy in light of COVID-19. I'm joined by Mark Lyon, Unite the Union's legal officer for Scotland, Deirdre Flanagan, one of the solicitors on the employment team who handles a variety of trade union claims, and David Martin, partner and head of the employment team at Thompson's. Mark, Dean, David, thank you all very much for joining me today. Before we start discussing today's topic, could you please all give me a bit of an introduction and let me know what your day-to-day job involves, starting with you, Mark? Sure, Paul. So I'm, I'm Mark Lyon. I'm United's legal officer for, for Scotland. So my day-to-day roles kind of coordinating things between ourselves and the panel solicitors like Thompson's and really sort of making sure that our members are kept up to date, our representatives and our officers are kept up to date with, with the latest legal position, which has been a bit of a challenge in recent times especially. And really, I think it's important to say that that you know, it's a legal role, but it's a very industrial role as well. So we get involved in the workplaces and, and that's what we, we like to focus on, trying to make sure that workplace issues are, are dealt with. So that's marking the role day to day. Great. And how have you been finding the, the lockdowns been affecting, you know, family life and your, your day-to-day job role? Quite tough, to be honest. It's been a strange situation working from home. My wife, she's working for home as well. She's a teacher, so she's been kind of posting stuff. So we keep bumping into each other as we go around the house. So there's been a bit of that. And just it has been kind of unusual. I've missed sort of being with people and being able to talk personally with people and just kind of bounce things around. Because you don't tend to pick up the phone just to have a bit of a kind of gripe. Whereas yeah. when you're in the office, you can, you can have a bit of a kind of shouting match or whatever. And, and that. So it's been yeah. unusual, but it's worked out okay. It's worked out all right. Great. Thanks, Mark. And what about you, Dee? Yes, so I'm Dee. I'm a solicitor in the employment law team at Thompson's, and I mainly do cases for the employment tribunal for trade union members. These cases often involve unfair dismissals or unlawful deduction of wages, as well as discrimination claims under the Equality Act. And obviously, recently, we've seen a, a upsurge in issues to do with redundancy and issues with, with furlough and so on as a result of, of COVID-19. So mm-hmm. uh, I've been kept very busy and it's a, it's a very difficult time for a lot of the, the trade union members and people seem to be experiencing a lot of employment law uh, problems. So generally trying to, to help, if not solve them, uh, at least mitigate them somewhat. Yeah. And how, how are you finding home life with the COVID situation? Well, I've, I've never had so much home life in my life. I've never been in so often in my own flat. The, I've actually been shopping for food and, and things like that. So yeah, it's very, it's very strange. Um, but from that point of view, that, that's actually having a, a life of domesticity. It's been actually quite a nice break. No, I quite agree. And David? Yeah, um, so I, I work alongside Dee in the employment team at Thompson's. And again, just do the full range of employment law cases and a lot of recently has been spent, you know, speaking to Mark and, and other uh, legal officers within trade unions about, I suppose, some of the sort of bigger issues that have arisen as a result of the crisis. I mean, it's been completely unprecedented for everyone. And I think the unions have done a, a, a very good job sort of thinking ahead about things like 
you know, how to get their members back to work safely, you know, and how to give different types of advice to people who are in different situations, you know, based on their health and their, you know, whether they're shielding and what sort of workplace they're in. So, you know, it's been a very, very challenging two or three months for us in terms of advising unions. But I think really for the unions on the ground, it's been, you know, there was no rule book. And it's been an interesting time trying to, trying to mm-hmm. write that rule book as we go along the last few, few months. And as the as the partner in the employment team, are you finding it useful not to have a queue of people at your door in the office all the time asking you questions? I think as, as everyone's probably experienced, there's good and bad bits to working from home. I think the thing we're all missing, I mean, obviously when this all started, and I think this is the same for a lot of people working in office environments, you know, we had to make sure that we, we got everybody home as quickly as possible and as safely as possible. And then we had to kind of work out how we were going to actually operate after we'd got everybody out of the office and that was a you know that was a bit of a scary time for everyone um, but I've got to be honest I think like other people you know it's amazing how well it has worked it is very different but you know we have managed to give the same kind of service we think to you know the individual clients we represent and also to the, to the unions even though we're all working from home and I think I think I've said this to you before Mark actually if we were trying to do this five ten years ago it would have been almost unimaginably difficult to do what we do on a day-to-day basis without the technology, without you know Zoom calls and and without the email using used as much as we do. So yeah, there are certain good bits to it, but uh, I'm just I'm just amazed, frankly, that the, the world the sky hasn't fallen in as I think some of us predicted it might have done. No, absolutely. Looking at the the trade union movement, which is um, obviously a big feature of this podcast, um, a lot of people know vaguely what trade unions are some might be members or have been members mark could you please talk a little bit about the trade union movement itself and how it's evolved over the years yeah sure i mean it's been quite interesting how a light's been shone on quite a lot of the work that trade unions do through this situation and it's actually it's really quite strange we've had michael gove saying that his mates len mccluskey and things like that We've got a really strange kind of situation, but I think in terms of the evolution of trade unions, I think that there's been a, it's been a really quite a tough time for for unions over the years, and there's a few bits to that. I mean, you know, the political hostility trade unions has has caused us a great deal of difficulties over the years, and obviously the the legal position it's not great for trade unions in this country compared to other countries we find it quite difficult to navigate through things so i think that's one of the elements is the political hostility that's that goes way back the other thing i would say is that you know the world of work has changed quite significantly as well so the, the days of the big battalions where you had you know conveners who virtually ran their own show that's less so now still there but it's less so now and it's you know as the, the, the economy is kind of quite fragmented so we do a lot of servicing of individual members as well. So that's that kind of comes into play as well. And the third thing I would say is that it has, it feels like it's become very legalistic, even in my time as an officer and a convener and short steward and, and things. You know, employers are, are less likely to go into a back room and come to some arrangement and sort things out. It's, it all becomes very legalistic very quickly. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's great that we've got 
that support from Thompsons and, and, and from our panel solicitors at that time because that kind of brings that about. But we're hoping that the situation that's come up will lead to a less hostile approach towards trade unions and make our lives just a little bit more kind of manageable on that. So I would say another thing to say as well, I suppose, is that you know, trade unions have merged over that time and rationalised a bit. And you know, I think this will be a bit of a watershed moment for us. Our membership's increased significantly, which is, is good and may, may have been surprising to some people, but I think the value of the trade union movement has really come to the fore because of this, this crisis. So that's a kind of very potted history of you know, my view on, on how things have evolved. No, no, thanks for that, Mark. And, you know, you, you mentioned the, the political hostility. I mean, I, I was born in 1979 myself, and my entire life has been, you know, Thatcher followed by New Labour leading up to today. What exactly was the, the hostility that was wrought upon the, the unions throughout the 80s? I mean, part of that comes down to being effective, you know, and without being kind of too overtly political and broad about it, I think anything that gets in the way of that capitalist kind of shift of you know, wealth from one point to another point is, is something that's been combated. And you know, in terms of the conservative kind of agenda, this sort of narrative that the markets will heal themselves, and we're starting to hear that now again, by the way, that's starting to kind of come to the fore. The markets will heal themselves. Let the markets decide. Well, we've seen the markets decide and we've seen the calamity that that's been. So I think we were just seeing as something that got in the way of that type of, as they would see it as, as progress and something to be combated. And well, I'm just going to try, I think just when you say that whole thing about you know the markets will always provide, I think it's quite interesting when you, you look at you know, the current situation where you say the markets will always provide except when something happens like this. You know? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I know we'll talk about the furlough scheme later, but it's just, you know, anyone who was harboring under that illusion that the markets would just rationally provide resources to everyone. I mean, Richie Sunak has just blown that out of the water for generations to come, and quite rightly so. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. One great phrase I remember reading was the idea of you know, the, there's the hidden hand of the market and then the, the hidden elbow that bashes everything else out the way and, and, and the way through. I'd like to turn now to the, the kind of general effects of COVID-19 economically. The COVID's obviously already affected the economic landscape in the UK. How is that being reflected in the types of cases you're seeing coming through the door? Well, it's interesting when it comes to the, the bit that the lawyers get involved because we often get involved after things happen. Now, I'm anticipating that we have not yet seen the, the massive wave of employment law issues that is to come. And I think Mark would probably agree with me that it's actually the, the trade union officials themselves who are currently experiencing that. And I think we're yet to yet to deal with the, the major issues. Most of that is likely, certainly in a lot of the, the traditional industries, because the furlough scheme has mitigated a lot of those effects because it's essentially avoided dismissals. And we anticipate that 
that will not last forever. Um, we know it won't. Some industries will get back on their feet and jobs will be saved. Other industries won't and, and jobs will be lost. And other employers may take advantage of those circumstances to dismiss people or to reduce their workforce in discriminatory ways or by reducing wages and using that, that threat. So I anticipate that, that this is something that's going to last for a very long time and we're just, we're just seeing the start of it right now. Mm-hmm. Mark, from your side, like what specific sectors are facing the worst job losses at the moment as far as you can see or are, are about to? The kind of obvious ones for us, the general unions like aviation, and initially we saw construction dropped right off, it's beginning to kind of pick up again, oil and gas, manufacturing itself and hospitality. But can I, can I say as well that we've been having a, a bit of a conversation within Unite on this because our, our lay members and our national officers and stuff, they don't operate in silos, but they've got sectors to look after. So I think what this is also kind of really brought to, to, to the fore is how connected the economy is. So, for instance, we're talking yesterday about an example that the ground handling company who deals with, you know, moving the airplanes around and security and stuff at the airports, they've announced 300 redundancies yesterday, half their workforce. And the reason they've done that is because British Airways, just to name them, have said that they're going to cut a massive chunk of their their kind of uh, workforce and, and, and their ability to fly. But then on top of that, we're talking about the bus sector. So Lothian buses rely on the airport for a big chunk of their work. And then Alexander Dennis are hoping to get contracts in order to pay for them. And hospitality is tied in with all of that. And the oil sector is covered with that as well. So what we're actually turning our mind to a wee bit is to have a look at how we best approach this. Because... Somebody's described that, you know, we hear about House of Cards when it comes to these jobs, and that's what Dave's kind of saying about, you know, that we're going to see this kind of avalanche of job losses and stuff. But I think we're trying to think more in terms of dominoes, sorry for the analogy, but because, and, and who's going to step in and intervene and say, right, what domino are we going to keep standing here? Because, you know, you know Alexander Dennis, very come across as very reasonable, saying we have to have redundancies because we've not got orders. Well, why have we not got orders? So who's who's overseeing that? We think that there has to be government intervention there to say, no, wait a minute, you know, this is of epic proportions. This is pre-war debt that we have to set aside. We have to deal with this in a completely different way. And can everybody please just freeze for a moment until we get a chance to recover this? Because otherwise it's just going to be so... And David's used the phrase self-fulfilling prophecy that you know, British Airways are saying we won't be able to fly all those aeroplanes because we've lost a quarter of our workforce while paying off a quarter of their workforce. So, you know, how on earth could they fly the plane? So it's that type of big ticket intervention that we think that we need. Whereas our officers are, are sometimes getting drawn into that, you know, that it's this redundancy, it's this employer, how do we deal with that? So we're kind of wrestling with the, the bigger picture on that how we broaden things out and just how we deal with that, eh, Paul. Just to jump in, but I think that's a really interesting point, Mark, because while the furlough scheme is really, you know, it's to be applauded, to some extent it's quite superficial. It's just dealing with the effect, you know, in the end of people's jobs, what you're actually talking about, which I think is much more fundamental, is, you know, investment in the base level and in critical industries to make sure that some of those dominoes 
as you say, keep standing and stop the rot. And you know, jobs will be saved if you put that investment in the right place. But you know, whether we've got the right government for that is, you know, we have to wait and see whether that's the case. But um, it's, it's an interesting approach that United's taking that sort of wider approach rather than just looking at, at it, you know, job by job or company by company. Yes, I mean, it might seem like an extreme left-wing idea, but really, from my perspective, and I think probably some of you will agree that the the universal basic income as a principle seems to be the best way to deal with everything all at once. You know, I don't know what... Dee, I would imagine you might have a, a view on that idea. Yeah, I mean... So UBI is obviously the subject to, to a lot of debate, and I think generally just about how, how it should be implemented, apart from you know some particular right-wing people who are still insisting in the face of everything that the solution to society's problems is, is an emphasis on work. There are obviously concerns about universal basic income, and it might I expect what it might end up being is that it's just it's got lots of faults but it's the best solution out there, you know, much like democracy or something like that. But what Mark says, I completely agree with, there's employment protections in law are there to, are there statutory protections and there's, there's the contract between the employee and their employer. These are private arrangements within the state. And the solution for how to mitigate the massive recession we're entering into is not going to be based on rejigging or making little changes here and there to what's essentially a private contractual arrangement and what's essentially an exploitative arrangement much in the same way as, as landlords and tenant contracts are and um, where the one side has a lot of bargaining power and the other side has none so the fact that we have an economy and a society now in which someone's prosperity within that society and their family's prosperity and security is based on their ability to work and the arrangements that they can bargain with within that relationship. This situation cannot go on. It's just not practical. And that's before we even come to, to the conclusion that what are we all doing? What is most people's work and the duties that they have to spend most of their week doing? What is it for if we're just relentlessly consuming and all having jobs because other people have jobs? And I'll just say that I know I'm the biggest parasite in that whole uh, dichotomy because I'm an employment lawyer so my job only exists because people are employed and because employers break the law so I, I put myself firmly in, in the middle of that and of course we're all implicated but yes a massive state intervention and a radical change something um, to, like universal basic income has got to be the, the solution here. Well, that's great Dee and I think that's a good segue into the the law in general, because while it would be great to implement a lot of these ideas, we're stuck to some extent with fairly heartless right-wing government that's in charge of the Treasury. And we have to rely on the, the law as it is to protect our clients and the union members. On that topic, redundancy law and protective awards, which is the main subject of this podcast, perhaps, David, you could give a brief outline of redundancy law and protective awards before we move on. Yeah, sure, sure Paul. I, th I think it's probably better when we're talking about what sort of protections people have got around redundancy to split it into two different groups, you know, or two, two different categories that people might fall into. First of all, let, let's talk about 
you know, an individual's rights when it comes to redundancies. And that's a situation where there's fewer than 20 other people being made redundant at the same establishment. So this will effectively be with smaller employers and there, there may not be collective unionised representation in that scenario. People do have a protection when it comes to being dismissed for redundancy. In effect, the redundancy has to not be an unfair dismissal. So it's effectively using what we'd call the law of unfair dismissal to protect yourself from being made redundant. In essence, the law puts a series of obligations on the employer. And I'll maybe just run through what those are, just in a kind of headline basis so that anyone listening to this who's thinking, look, I've been, you know, my, my employer's talking about redundancies, knows what, what questions they should be asking of the employer. I think the starting point is to say, well, is there really a genuine redundancy situation? You know, and what we mean by that is, has there been a reduction in the requirements of the business for people to carry out jobs of the type that I'm carrying out? Now, most employers would be expected to provide some sort of justification, probably in writing, from the very outset to say, look, these are the financial problems that we're facing, or these are the, you know, that this is the downturn in work that we're facing. And this is why we think we need to make X number of redundancies. You know, this is why we think we're carrying too many jobs. I think it's important to look at those proposals carefully, examine them closely and forensically and ask difficult questions. It certainly makes it easier when it comes to challenging dismissal at the end if you've asked those questions from the outset. You know, and, and don't be scared, you're perfectly entitled to ask these questions because very often what we see is people dressing up redundancies as something else. It's just an opportunity when actually... The business could carry a short downturn for a period. What they're actually trying to do is dress up redundancies as a way of getting rid of staff that people felt were slightly underperforming or that they had people that were perhaps trade union reps or were vocal within the workplace. It's important to quit to question whether the evidence, the facts, the, the statistics actually back up the fact that this is a business that has two redundancies. Realistically, in the current situation, a lot of companies are going to be making redundancies or, or, or there are going to be a lot of genuine redundancy situations. The next step really is for the employer to show that they've created what's called a fair pool for selection. And that basically means that they have to include everybody within the, the group of people who might be made redundant, who they should reasonably include. And that, broadly speaking, means everybody who's doing the same sort of job within the same location. So. It would be very odd if you, know, you had a, a group of five people doing a particular job and only three of them were put in the pool for redundancy. And you might be asking yourself the question, well, what's different about the two guys who were excluded from that pool? And it might be that they're the most, you know, they're, they're the, the, the two youngest employees or, you know, they're, you know, they, they're two guys who have got relations with the management that are different to, to the other people. So you want to look at that pool for selection and say, is that a fair, reasonable pool for selection? The next thing the employer has to do is to select who they're going to make redundant using a fair selection process. Now, broadly speaking, that the selection criteria that they should use are objective as far as possible. So that's things like you know, obvious criteria we would see used are things like somebody's disciplinary record, somebody's absence record. We might also see employers use things like training and skills and the sort of certificates and, and work tickets that people hold. They're the sort of things that could be fairly used. There is a, you know, there's definitely a, an obligation not to use criteria which are 
completely subjective. Now that's, you know, things like attitude to work. That's the sort of thing that um, I think you would say is a, a very subjective criteria, which a manager could just use to, to fiddle the scores effectively. But you can use things that are to some extent subjective, such as previous appraisals, for example. You might want to look at appraisals that covered a wide, wide range of scores in the past, and those, those are arguably verifiable and arguably fair to use within a redundancy scoring matrix. One thing to look out for, last in, first out, was a criteria that used to be used in the past and has broadly been found to be discriminatory on grounds of age because generally it tends to favour older workers. But you can use that criteria, usually only if there's a kind of tie break with, with two employees on all the other scores could you use last in, first out as a criteria. So we've got starting point is, is there a redundancy situation? If there is, you have to create a fair pool for selection. Once you've created your fair pool for selection, there has to be a fair scoring matrix. That scoring matrix has to be fairly applied. Now, you would expect to see transparency in terms of how your scores have been put together. And I think, importantly, you would expect the employer to disclose to you what was the cutoff level, the number of points you needed to get below which you were going to be you were going to be selected for redundancy and above which you were going to be safe. And a lot of employers don't actually give out that information and should do. So if you are selected, unfortunately, at the end of that process, then you know you should be certainly consulted about the fact that you've been selected. You should be offered redeployment in different roles if there are other roles available. You should probably be given training opportunities to fill roles, even if there are roles that you can't already uh, do and you should be given the right to appeal against your uh, eventual dismissal. You should then obviously be given, unfortunately, if there, are, if there is no alternative employment available, you know, it is possible to dismiss somebody by reason of redundancy. The law does allow that. It puts those requirements on the employer, but it does allow for dismissals by way of redundancy. The important thing, if you are selected, is to make sure that you are getting the appropriate redundancy payment. One thing to look out for in this a lot of companies will historically have what's called an enhanced contractual redundancy payment. So, you know, actually at the start of the process, I would be asking to, to see whether there are any policies in relation to enhanced redundancy payments that, that might apply to your contract, because that can give you a significantly higher redundancy payment than you would get if you were just using the statutory scheme. Everybody will, however, get a redundancy payment, and it's based effectively on your, your length of service and your age and effectively a capped amount, which would be provided to you. But the, the, the maximum amount you might get in redundancy is about £16,000 at the moment, which for somebody who's had 20, 30 years services, it, it's really not a significant amount of money. It's probably not enough to see uh, somebody through to their next job, particularly in an economy like this. So a bit of a rambling explanation, but I think if that, that's, that effectively covers off individual uh, redundancy processes. That was excellent, David. And perhaps turning to the situation where an employer is making larger number of people redundant, what type of things should employees and employers be looking out for in that situation, Dee? So where an employer is, is proposing to make uh, what we'd like usually say is a mass redundancy, so more than, uh, say, 20 people, there's a, a unique claim which employees have against their employer other than their, their claims for, for statutory redundancy payments, which is that they could pursue a protective award. Now, 
A protective award can be claimed where an employer makes more than 20 persons redundant either at the same time or within a 90-day period. Now, when that happens, it's not the case that all, that all 20 employees or 20 plus need to necessarily get together. Each person has a right to a claim that they can raise that in the employment tribunal against their employer in circumstances where the employer has failed to consult. Now, the failure to consult is essentially that there's the Trade Union Labour Relations Consolidation Act requires that an employer provide specific information to either the, the recognised trade union in that workplace or representatives who've been elected by the employees themselves are failing that, the, the specific employee. So the employer must provide specific information. This includes the reasons for the proposed redundancies, the numbers and descriptions of the employees who, who they propose to dismiss, the total number of employees of any such description that they propose to dismiss in that particular workplace, and then the proposed method of selecting those, and how essentially how they're going to do it, and what redundancy payments they're going to make. So where an employer fails to do that, either with the, the trade union and elected representative, or the failing, if they haven't done that, then the employee themselves, then that employee can raise an action. They can seek a protective award for up to 90 days pay. So the, what's interesting about protective awards and what's different about them with other, with other cases that we normally see in employment law, like unfair dismissals or discrimination claims under the Equality Act, is that the purpose of them is to essentially punish the employer for its failure to consult, for its failure to ask employees how could we possibly avoid these dismissals? Other cases, like unfair dismissal, an employee can only ever really be compensated for their own financial loss as a result of, of being dismissed. So it's quite a unique feature of employment law, uh, these protective awards. And it's, um, it's something that I think a lot of employees and a lot of workers don't necessarily really know about. Thanks, Dee. Now, in a situation where the employer is unable to pay employees their required redundancy payments, what can employees do, David? Because a lot of them do say, well, wait a minute, my company's insolvent. What am I meant to do to get my money? Unfortunately, we see quite often we see these sorts of cases linked to the insolvency of businesses. So what's likely to happen if the employer can't pay your redundancy payment and sometimes they won't pay your notice pay either, you'll effectively you'll just turn up on, on the day. And in fact, as we're speaking, I've just had an email in from someone saying that that's just happened to them. They've turned up in the morning and the employer has said, well, that's it, I'm just shutting doors as of now. What's likely to have happened is that the insolvency practitioner will have been appointed and that effectively means that the business is now being run by an insolvency officer whose job is to distribute the assets of the business fairly amongst everybody who is owed money. Now, the problem is that any company that gets to that stage, unfortunately, the only organisations who tend to get money out of an insolvency banks and uh, HMRC employees have a degree of protection but not very much so you're very unlikely to get much out of a company when it goes into insolvency. Fortunately there is a scheme in place, it's basically a government-backed scheme that will pay your redundancy payment, although only the basic redundancy payment that I talked about, the statutory payment, 
it will pay your notice pay. So your notice pay is effectively one, one week's pay for every year of your service up to 12 weeks. It will pay any holidays that you've accrued but you, you haven't managed to take. So, you know, if you're halfway through the leave year and you haven't managed to take any holidays at all, then you know, you're going to have a, a decent, at least a couple of weeks of holidays you can, you can recover. And also unpaid wages. This is one of the scandalous things we see happening quite a lot in protective award cases where companies have been into liquidation is that companies will keep trading. Let's say that the pay run is the beginning of the month. They'll keep trading right up until the end of the month, not paying their employees. And then just before they're due to pay the employees, they, they shut up the, the, the doors, meaning that employees have worked for them for three and a half weeks without you know the company knowing full well that they weren't going to be paid at the end of that process. You can recover that money from the government's redundancy payments office. And the insolvency practitioner will, will talk you through that. And that's something which people, you know, by all means, they can support, seek support from the union in, in respect to that process. But in a lot of cases, it's, it's the insolvency practitioner who should be helping people out to get all those payments back from the government. There's one exception to that, which is in respect to protective awards. What quite often happens, you know, is there has been zero consultation at all. Everyone impacted by that, and that's the, the, the type of case that Dee was just talking about. Everybody impacted that is, is up, entitled to up to 90 days pay, and they have a legal claim that they can raise in respect of that. But obviously the same situation applies. The company is insolvent, so it's very difficult to get any money out of the company. Now, the insolvency service will eventually pay money out in respect of protective awards but they won't do that automatically that's something that people would have to raise a claim in the employment tribunal for and they can do that obviously if they're part of a so they're lucky enough to be part of a organization where there's a recognized trade union then the trade union would generally raise a single claim in the name of the trade union and that and everybody would then benefit from that eventually or if it's individuals who are involved then they'd have to go through that process themselves by raising a claim that's excellent, David. Before I move on to, to you again, Mark, to discuss Unite and some of the on-the-ground work that Unite do, an important part of redundancy law and just the end of people's employment in general is settlement agreements. Dee, could you maybe just give a quick synopsis of what settlement agreements are and what their purpose is and when they're issued? So a settlement agreement is, is something that is essentially used by, by the employer to settle claims with an employee that they wish to dismiss. Now, sometimes settlement agreements will be actually be proposed by the employee themselves and both the employer and the employee have a, a statutory protection from being able to, that they can have a candid discussion if that employee wants to leave or that employer essentially wants to make that employee an offer to leave that they both won't rely on that in, in any lit, later litigation. That, that's solely in, in the case of unfair dismissal. By the way, it wouldn't apply to, to say, a discrimination case. But essentially what it is, is the employer giving the employee a document which says when they're going to leave, when their termination date will be, what financial compensation they'll be paid, including things like what holiday pay they're due, what notice pay they're due. And we usually see a compensatory payment for the loss of employment in general, what you, you might think in layman's terms of sort of buying off uh, any future claims. And in that, the employee signs it up. They sign it to say, I'm not going to sue you and I'll accept this money and I'll, I'll leave on this date. 
So it's essentially it's a tool for employers avoiding liability for future claims and, and regulating people leaving their employment. Great. And they're not, they're not always involved settlement agreements. Sometimes you get redundancies without settlement agreements being involved, don't you? Yes. I mean, it's, it's all the time. The employers who have employees leave by, by settlement agreement are usually the ones acting more cautiously. Right, great. Uh, but Paul, I was just going to say, I think in, in terms of the what we might see as part of consultation, as Steve was talking about the collective consultation process, what, one of the things that employers have to do is find a way of you know, mitigating the consequences of dismissals that they're proposing. And that very often means that what they should effectively be doing or what a reasonable employer would do in those circumstances is before they go through any compulsory redundancy process, they invite employees for voluntary redundancy, which is effectively saying, you know, is there anyone for whom this would suit your circumstances? You know, usually people who are frankly sick of the work that we're doing already or who are maybe coming to the end of their, their, their working life, they might say, well, actually, I would prefer to be offered a redundancy payment now. What we quite often see with those voluntary redundancy agreements is that they might be done by way of a settlement agreement. Just so people are aware, you know, don't be surprised if you are offered voluntary redundancy, quite often the employer will say, you know, we need you to sign this legal agreement in order to get your voluntary redundancy package. And it's usually because they're just a bit scared about the employee subsequently coming back and, and arguing that, you know, there was something untowards about the, the, the employment coming to an end and they effectively want to buy off claims. I think it's important in that circumstance because Dee said, this is all about a protection for employers and therefore there should be some value in that. So we would often say, look, if you're only being offered what you're entitled to under your contract, then you know a settlement agreement doesn't give an employee very much at all, if anything. You should always be saying, if you're asked to sign up to a settlement agreement to sign away your employment rights, then you should be getting some additional compensation from that from your employer. Right, I see, because otherwise the employee is just getting what they're entitled to yeah. anyway. Yeah, that's great. Mark, I'd like listeners to know more about Unite and the benefits of membership. Is If somebody is a member of a union like Unite, what role does the union play when that member approaches them to say, for example, they've been given a settlement agreement or their employer is planning to make them redundant? Settlement agreements are one of the kind of tools in the box for, for our officers and members as well. But as, as David and Dee have said, it's not something that we routinely use if, if we can avoid doing it you know, in, a, in a different way. Usually if there's a, a settlement agreement on the table, it's because they're trying to silence our members for some reason. So it is used in that way. But no, I mean, we've got a, a fantastic service when these settlement agreements are on the table. And basically what happens is the employer will put forward a draft of that which will go across to the solicitors, across to Thompson's, to have a look at. And they'll advise the members individually on anything they should be aware of on that. So sometimes, for instance, it will seek to limit their ability to take further claims that are unrelated to the issue that they're leaving on, like for personal injury claims or whatever. And you have to be quite vigilant that it doesn't limit that. The other thing that's kind of crept in in recent times is this thing about the tax liabilities. And they always try and put something in senators' future tax liabilities the lie with a member and stuff. So it's useful for that. And I think I'm right in saying as well that, that a solicitor actually has to look at the settlement agreements before they can be they can abandoned. They have to get that advice. So it's a really invaluable thing that 
a lot of our members never see, but it's there in the background as a, a sort of service where they're usually in a, a time of trouble. And that settlement agreement will be kind of robustly looked over and they'll be advised individually and then they'll make the call and whether they go forward with that or not. So it's something that we do see and it's, it's something that gives that. But as David says, it mainly gives a comfort to the employer that sometimes we can get a kind of enhanced settlement or a quick settlement for the member. So sometimes it can be to the benefit of members as well. And more broadly, Mark, when it comes to, you know, people might be listening to this thinking, I've never really thought I've needed to join a union. I know they exist. What would you describe as the benefits to those people of becoming a Unite member? Well, very much. I mean, I think under the, the current leadership at Unite, I think we're, we're always aware that our stock and trade is the workplace issues. So, you know, we do car insurance and holiday insurance and we do all sorts of fringe benefits, but our stock and trade is supporting people in the world of work or supporting people who are not in the world of work but seeking to go into the world of work or community members that have got a particular sort of industrially focused issue that can help them. And within the workplace, I mean, there's all this sort of conventional stuff that people probably would recognise as being the function of a trade union. Our workplaces undoubtedly that are recognised have higher wages, they have better holidays, they have more protections, they don't get hired and fired in the same way as non-recognised workplaces. There's no doubt about that, that's a fact. But as well within the workplaces, the safety side of things has been really important in recent things, but it's always important that it's true to say that trade union workplaces are safer workplaces. And it's been interesting as well, I think, recently the Scottish government's introduced this idea about roving safety representatives as well, which is helping spread that out, where reps can actually you know, go in, into other workplaces with the consent of that employer. But, you know, the legal services that we've talked about are really important, but we provide education, there's financial advice, and there's also, we're kind of always careful how we, I guess, think about this, but political influence, because sometimes people say, well, you know, the trade union should be separate from politics and politics don't count and all that type of thing. But I think we would argue that a very focused political emphasis is what we bring as a union. So it's not designed for, you know, politics per se. It's more about how does each of these decisions affect the workplace? What are the things we should be lobbying on for workplaces and Slightly going back to the previous discussion, slightly off on that tangent you, that we were talking about, but, you know, I think big weaknesses in the law that we're kind of lobbying to try and improve, like, for instance, that one about, if we talk about redundancies, there's great limitations on that consultation, because as David says, there should be a rationale that there is a bona fide redundancy situation or, or we shouldn't go ahead. So that's a given. But where the economic employer is not your employer, then it almost ends at the point that the employer... So some examples offshore where we've got contractors coming and saying, well, there's not going to be any drilling for the next two years, so we have to have redundancies because we're not going to have any jobs. It's difficult to argue that, but actually, you know, underlying that is a huge debate that you would want to have with the economic employer. But the consultation doesn't extend to that. They don't have to tell us about that. It ends there. And the other thing as well, because 
when Deanne and David were talking about the protective awards and, and stuff, I mean, it is kind of ironic, Dee, because you're perfectly right that, you know, it's, it's a punitive measure. But very often, the employer doesn't pay the protective award because they're, they're gone. They waved goodbye to us in the head off, and that punishment goes to the, the taxpayer who pays that, that money over. And the other thing as well, just on that, is all, all these payments that we talk about in terms of our week's wages and stuff are limited by the cap as well. And sometimes when you're speaking to members during that period, it's almost like every answer is the wrong answer. So if I yeah. take a job after I get paid off, do I get my full notice pay? No. So, Paul, I've slightly strayed off what you were saying there, but I think it was to give you an illustration of why politics matter, and we try to stay on track with that and say, well, look, what are the things that matter most in terms of improvements and what we can lobby on? And we've been doing a lot of that lately with the job retention scheme, trying to expand that out. We've got self-employed members as well, taxi drivers and things like that trying to make sure that they're involved in that support. So, so trying to bring that politics, which doesn't immediately benefit the member there, you know, day in and day out, but in a broader way, I, I just think we bring up, you know, something party, we can improve a lot of everybody. So, so tons of benefits have been in the trade union movement. And I think that's, that's kind of been illustrated, especially over the last few months. Thanks, Martin. Dee, did you want to say something there? Yes, I just wanted to jump in on, on what Marcus said about the, the protective awards there and just point out that even where an employer uh, remains solvent, there is a chance that the members won't necessarily get, get their claim for a protective award. And that's because the, the right or the duty to consult, rather, that the employers have is not an absolute one. And they have a defence known as a special circumstances defence where if it's not been reasonably practicable, and practicable is a word that's used in law all the time, it, it just, from what I can gather after years of practice, just means practical. So where it's not practical to have informed and consulted employees or their representatives or employees, it, employers often do advance a defence on those grounds. And that defence can sometimes have the result that they're not liable to pay protective awards at all and other times it has a result that the 90-day pay period is reduced to show that the employer's breach of the duty was not so serious because of these external reasons. And of course, in sort of the, the neoliberal landscape, so many companies are not just the traditional, that's your employer and you know who they are. They're often uh, have a parent company themselves who have another parent company over here and decisions can often be made in boardrooms miles and miles away from, from where that employee actually is. And there's quite a, a bureaucratic uh, system, which, which means that employers do have a lot of leeway to say, well, you know, that we didn't make this decision. This came to us from the New York office of some other company and we didn't know about it. Therefore, you know, it's not reasonable to expect us to have complied with all these time limits. Absolutely. I, mean, I think there's certainly a, a need in terms of, policy change perhaps for there to be an ability to look behind the curtain so to speak and say look as Mark said who's the economic employer here and hopefully create some kind of liability or obligation there but as things stand as I understand it you've got a situation where the the lawmakers are heavily influenced by the employers is that correct David that suggestion 
Yeah, I think maybe a couple of points, just picking up on some of the, the issues that, that have been raised by uh, both Mark and Dee there. I think in relation to the political influence that unions can have, I actually do think the job retention scheme and the extension to self-employed workers, I think that's a really good example for me of the, the links that unions have within the political sphere, and particularly within central government, because there is no doubt that the changes that have been made to the job retention scheme, and in fact the very existence of the job retention scheme, comes about as a direct result of lobbying by the trade union movement. You know, that took place in record speed. Now, I, th- I think you know the reason it was immediately accepted is because it obviously made sense. So it was a great suggestion that was made, but the reason it's been extended as long as it has, and the reason it has been broadened out as much as it has, is because of the campaigning that, that took place by trade unions. So I do think, while some of the points Mark makes about trade union influence being long term, it can have you know having those links with with government can have an immediate effect when you hit this kind of emergency situation. I think just to take, just to touch on it, maybe finally on the protect for award point, the big issue, as we say, is who is responsible. And if it's just corporate entities who are broadly responsible, then as Mark said, either they go into administration or they just point the finger at somebody else and say, we're not the ultimate person paying the bill here. Protect for awards are a little bit, there is a degree of hope here. And I think this is something where the, and it's actually the insolvency service could do something about this. It is a criminal offence for a director not to issue what are called HR1 forms, which are the formal notifications of an intention to dismiss you know, large numbers of employees. That is a criminal offence which directors can be held liable for. It's also, and that is something which is rarely enforced against company directors. And I think actually, you know, that's where you would have more effect in terms of forcing employers to consult with unions about ways of avoiding dismissals if you enforce that criminal sanction uh, against company directors and you publicise the enforcement of, of that sanction because you know company directors it, very often it's not their money you know the people making the decision it's not their money so they frankly don't care but they certainly care about facing criminal sanctions so that's just one, one other point that I think is important to me. To understand that correctly, David, at what point do they have to issue those HR1 forms? Like, is it at the point where they are contemplating the dismissals themselves? So to look at a specific protective award case, all the protective award cases that you've handled, where you could show that an employer knew they were going to be making these dismissals, say, three months in advance, but then didn't actually announced them until to the employees until they were making them redundant on the day of the liquidators coming in. That's a criminal offence. Yes, it would be a criminal offence not to issue it within those timescales at the point you're proposing to make the dismissals. Right, um, okay. So, yes. Mark, uh, in terms of what the union actually does on the ground when there's a collective consultation process happening... It'd be interesting to know what Unite's involvement actually is in that consultation process. How does it all begin and how does it end? I mean, each, each situation is obviously, obviously different, but we are seeing lots of these, you know, starting to kick off at the moment. And normally what will happen is either, you know, the HR1 will be issued signifying that there's potentially going to be redundancies or it comes through to us from a representative saying, you know, the company's 
contacting us or the officers being contacted to say here's our emergency situation. Now, in normal times, we do, you know, all the things that you would expect and David's outlined, you know, we'll, we'll challenge the premise for the, the redundancy straight away. Then we'll sort of challenge the scale of that, look at alternatives, we'll get involved in consultation, we'll, we'll talk about scoring matrices and how that all works. And, and then we'll support members in appeals against, you know, that they've been selected and we'll run that through to the conclusion and pick up any sort of legal issues where, where people have been unfairly treated or whatever. I think in recent times there's that added dynamic about, you know, the fact that sometimes people are furloughed who are, are potentially going to be made redundant. So there's been a, a sort of big debate about whether or not consultation could actually take place at all during the furlough period because people are not at work. So, you know, I think... And Dean David, no doubt, keep me right on this, but I think that you know the kind of legal position is that it can take place in theory, but then there's all the kind of complexities of how you communicate. So, of course, obligations you know for the employer to consult with the representatives, but then the representatives. So, what we're saying is the representatives have to put forward a credible timetable for that consultation to take place. And taking it into consideration that not everybody can go on to Zoom, not everybody's got technology to do that, the added time that it takes. So those consultation periods that we talked about earlier, the 30, 45, one of the things we're saying quite strongly is that they're not adequate, those timescales where that applies, because we need to take more time to consider all of this. So there's big kind of hurdles to communications, but that's what we're, we're trying to do at the moment is... Um, is make sure that our voice is heard. But I say it is extremely frustrating. And we're still arguing, you know, our headline argument is that none of this should be taking place while the support scheme's in place. It's premature and it's adding into that thing about the collapse of the sections of the economy because people are acting in haste and moving forward. And that's not even to take into consideration the opportunism that we're seeing, you know, they never let a, a good crisis go to waste. Yeah where, you know, how can we cut people's wages at the same time or put them onto that shift pattern we've been trying to move them on for ages. So, again, it's, it's, another, it's another benefit. I, I genuinely think that our members who have been involved in this, although that's the most, perhaps the most difficult time of their whole life, they are seeing that the union's there for them and that we're, we're trying to at least explore this in quite a methodical way and put the employer's feet to the fire on it. And I think there is a, an element of saying to the employers, look, we're setting out this timetable. If you don't you know, assist us with that, then we will have potentially cases for unfair dismissal or protective awards at the back end of it because you're, you're not going through that consultation period but no our officers are experts on this unfortunately sadly our officers have got quite a lot of hundreds of years between them on experience or redundancies but it has added this new dimension and people still ask us every day can this happen on furlough what do they need to pay us on furlough what's the notice pay based on and some of those questions are still being thrown around and to be honest until we're tested at the tribunal I don't think we'll get to the bottom of that for, for some time. But Paul, that's, that's what we're doing in terms of when mm-hmm. these things come across our desk. We're taking a very focused approach to it and, and methodology and making sure that we, we try and uh, 
get, get the very best outcome uh, for the members. And what, what can an employee actually do when the company is saying, we need to reduce you know, your pay by 20%, otherwise we're going to have to make everyone redundant? What happens in that situation? And I think, well, it's no easy to answer that question because, you know, it's never, it's never our remit as a trade union to try and reduce terms instinctively and in, in, in every fibre of our being, we would resist that type of thing. And again, it goes back to the thing about how genuine or otherwise some of that stuff is. So, you know, if, if good employers, and there are good employers, are coming at us and saying, look, we've got a real problem here with our order book, or saying hospitality, if we were saying, look, the hotel's shut down at the moment, is there something we can do in terms of deferring payments, or can we help with this, or could we reduce that temporarily, or whatever, then, you know, that'll be down to the members and the stewards to consider that, if they think that it's credible. But it's also trying to, kind of, you know, understand that a lot of employers, as I think you said, are out there saying, well, look, here's a great opportunity, let's cut the rate of pay, or whatever. In which case we would instinctively resist that, and always making sure that that's a you know a temporary change if we do go down that road, and that it's got limitations to it, and what criteria we bring it back in again, and making sure that if further down the line redundancy terms did come about, it would be based on the higher level and not the lower levels. I think there's some protections built in in that anyway, but it's trying to be it's trying to be very you know, apply every bit of craft to that that our officers and senior stewards bring to the party and working on a very business-like and methodical way on that to make sure that we, we keep a hold of all the balls on it. Thanks very much, Mark. So, Mark, a lot of people who aren't union members or aren't solicitors wouldn't necessarily know what it means when a, a trade union is recognised at a workplace. Like, What does that actually entail? Well, it means quite a number of things. I mean, it, probably the most obvious one is that we would recognised for the purposes of collective bargaining. So we would bargain terms and conditions, wages, directly, you know, on behalf of the, the members. But also it cuts into things that we discussed earlier on about if a redundancy situation comes up, then a recognised trade union would be the ones who would be part of that, as opposed to it being non-union. But even in the workplace where we don't have recognition, we do have influence. And we can still take industrial action if needs be. We could, you know, but but having the recognition is is always our aim for for all the workplaces. And David knows that, you know, we've constantly got recognition, you know, through the CEC. Like recognition sort of struggles sometimes with employers to try and get you know statutory recognition where voluntary recognition hasn't been attained and we've notable examples on the go at the moment with that and trying to get to that point because it is a valued thing. But again, it goes back to your point about the benefits of trade union membership. And I think it's, it's really important to say that to help us get that recognition, the starting point for that is to have a, a good density of a trade union membership. And this is where I think that, you know, we're constantly saying to, to, to people, you know, get yourself involved in the trade union movement because, you know, we can get recognition for you. And once we get recognition for you, then everything changes in the workplace. You know, we've, we've got a seat at the table. Every decision that's taken has to come through that trade union. You know, we're just there. And it means that those members stand on their own. 
which happens very often as well. They get picked off and individualised and, and forced into doing things. So it's a very important part of our sort of portfolio, if you like, to have, have recognition if we can. What do you think some of the, the myths are that create resistance to people joining trade unions? What are they hearing on the ground about why it's not worth it? What we talked about before, about the media, big media I'm talking about, you know, the, the onslaught against trade unions that takes place on a day-in and day-out basis has led people to think that it's not worth being involved in trade unions. I think employers go out their way to put that about as well. And the raft of, I don't know what the collective noun is for consultants, but the, the absolute raft of them that are out there advising employers and saying, oh no, you, you, unions just bring more cost in here. We won't get work, you know. We'll be seen by the head office as being the awkward squad and they'll put the work to somewhere else, and which is all nonsense because we know trade union workplaces are safer workplaces, they're more productive workplaces, they're workplaces where equality is observed much more, and they're just nicer places to work in, trade union workplaces. But that's a benefit to the employer as well as the employees as well. So that's the type of myths that we hear. We've got a works council, we don't need uh, trade unions, we've never had trade unions in here for all the years. I could go on with all the things that are thrown around and unfortunately, you know, it, it just takes a bit of time to turn that argument around. But I think again, you know, there's nothing positive about the last few months, but I think it has kind of sold the idea to a lot of people that they, you know, they really want to get on board. And as I say, our membership's increased and hopefully will continue to increase on the back of that leading recognition. That's excellent. David, when the furlough scheme begins to be tapered off, how do you expect this will affect redundancies? I think this is where trade unions are going to be incredibly important because whilst within many workplaces, it probably is inevitable there's going to be some redundancies or some give and take or some negotiation which will impact you know the future shape of the of, of the various businesses i think though the important thing that trade unions will be doing is to effectively hold employers feet to the fire and make sure that this is not taken advantage of particularly the furlough scheme because i think mark we've discussed this in the past that you know in essence what a lot of employers seem to be using or we worry that the employers are going to use the furlough scheme for is just a way to subsidize notice periods for people so effectively people are going to be paid effectively government subsidized notice periods before they're dismissed and that is something that unite have put really powerful submissions to the government about saying you know that is contrary to the terms of the the job retention scheme it is an abuse of that scheme to use it to subsidise redundancies. You know, employers have had a massive, massive handout from government here. Totally unprecedented. And they should be using that to do everything within their power to save jobs, not using it as an opportunity to subsidise them, reducing the number of jobs. Now, we as taxpayers have all, we are all going to pay for that. And I think most of us would be absolutely, we think that's absolutely the right thing to do. What is not the right thing to do is for employers to sit on pots of money, you know, which they, as the owners of that business, have built up and, and always talk about, you know, we're entitled to greater rewards because you're taking the risk in this business. That, that's the way the narrative always goes. Well, the time to pay out on that, on, on the risk that they've been taking, 
is now. This is when they should be using those funds and using the, the money that they've built up, even using personal, personal reserves, frankly, from shareholders to ensure that jobs are retained for the long-term good of the economy. You know, the state has played its role within this process. It has invested heavily in hundreds of thousands of private employers. It has invested in those employers by subsidising them. And I think it's time for the owners of those businesses to pay back that investment by holding on, by resisting the temptation to, to make people redundant now and allowing the economic picture to improve as it will within six to 12 months. So for me, that's the kind of, you know, I think that's the, the medium-term out, outlook. It's a, it, it, the test of a lot of employers as to how, you know, it's effectively a moral test, I think, for a lot of employers as to how they approach the next six to 12 months. Will they approach things in a socially responsible way or will they seek to protect their own interests and, and treat their staff poorly as a result? And I think that's what we're going to see in the next six to 12 months. Mark, what kind of steps is Unite already taking in, in preparation for the end of the furlough scheme? And are employers generally open for discussion? Or are they keeping their cards close to their chest, would you say? I think some of them are, and, and some of them are, you know, are coming off the pot on that, which, which isn't helpful. But, you know, going back to the, you know, the question you asked David, I, I totally agree with everything that David says, but I think much depends on what happens very shortly in the next month or two. So Unite, we're trying to make the case, you know, around that sort of, you know, domino effect. We're trying to make the case for specific tapering of support from the core industries that underpin the economy. You know, for instance, if you could support aviation, then it would support, you know, a whole load of other industries beyond that. So we're looking at, is there something specific you can do in that? But I think the point that David makes is very important, that that can't be unconditional anymore. And and whether we go to the lens of nationalisation of things, or whether we go to public stakes, or whatever we do, we, we need to have a model where we've got an improved business model coming out of this, where, where organisations are operating for the benefit of the whole of society and no other way around. And I was just, I've been struck as well by looking at things like the, the GDP numbers, where this whole thing has had an effect on Germany by 6%, and in the UK it's 21%. Well, why is that? What's the explanation for that? Somebody needs to explain that. And the other thing as well is looking at, for instance, Norway, who have got the Sovereign Wealth Fund arising out of the oil, where they've set aside for a rainy day billions and billions of pounds. Well, never has a rainy day arrived than today. And they're now drawing on that and saying we will support the economy. So there has to be, you know, I can see two kind of parts. One can be one where we might struggle to recover here for, for many years, or alternatively, we can have a real bold programme where we step in with the government and say, look, we need to treat this debt as almost like it's war debt. We need to set it aside. We need to invest right now. We need to support those key industries. And therefore, we've got a chance of picking things back up again and trying to say to employers, look, pause for a moment until we find out what the potential is here rather than folding, because then there's no way back. So I think there's two, I think we're at a real cleft, you know, I think we're in a, a fork in the road here, where it could go kind of two ways. And that's what Unite are doing behind the scenes and up front and with everything that we're doing 
we're trying to put across those arguments that it has to be you know one rather than the other. That's great, Mark. I think that's a, a great way to round things off. Well, thank you, Mark, D, and David for joining me today. And thank you too to all our listeners for tuning in. If you believe you might have the basis for a claim or would like to discuss anything arising from today's discussion, then please don't hesitate to contact us on 0141 566 6878. You can also find us on Facebook or tweet us at Talk2Thompsons. If you found today's podcast useful and would like to be kept informed about future podcasts, then please click subscribe. We look forward to welcoming you all again next week when we will be answering some of the most frequently asked questions about redundancy, settlement agreements and protective awards. Thank you. Talk to Thompson.